0: David Meerman Scott is an internationally acclaimed business strategist, keynote speaker, and advisor, as well as the best-selling author of the book's fanocracy, turning fans into customers and customers into fans, the new rules of marketing and PR, and marketing lessons from the Grateful Dead. Since 2002, David's books have been featured in notable publications like the Wall Street Journal, Businessweek, and have sold over a million copies in 29 languages. David's collection of artifacts from the Apollo Lunar program is said to be one of the best in the world, and his book Marketing the Moon was the inspiration for Robert Stone's three-part PBS American Experience documentary titled Chasing the Moon, which was released in July 2019 at the time of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. Pre-pandemic, David delivered keynote speeches in person at conferences and company meetings all over the world. David has found a new niche by focusing on virtual events. Along with speaking, David serves as an advisor and investor in emerging companies that are transforming their industries by delivering disruptive products and services. In his role as marketing professional, David realizes that the new web tools and techniques all have in common, that together they are the best way to communicate directly with your marketplace, and has used this principle to achieve success marketing across emerging social media platforms. Never a stranger to radical ideas, David has built his career by pursuing his interests and living life to the fullest. David, welcome to the One Away Show.
1: Hey, thanks, Brian. Good to be here. Yeah,
0: it's a pleasure having you here, and been uh, I've really enjoyed your work and uh, just your background that you come from, and uh, it's uh, it's an honor. So let's dive in, David. Uh, what's the one away moment that you want to share with us today?
1: Yeah. So I was working on my eleventh book, and I decided to write a book about fandom. And I was I was working hard on it. And I was thinking to myself, gee, you know, it'd be really cool to um, um, get the perspective of a younger person on fandom. I'm in my early 60s. I'm a man. um, And I wanted to get um, someone who was younger, perhaps a woman. So I kept bugging my daughter, Reiko. Um, as I was doing the research for, for, for a book about fandom and I'm like, what are you a fan of? What's interesting to you? How would a millennial react to that? You know, I was like bugging her with all these questions. And then the moment was, well, gosh, I, I, it was like a light bulb goes off and like, I should write this book with her. And so I, I thought about it for like 24 hours before I broached the subject with her. And I said, hey, Reiko I'm writing this book. And she knew that, of course, because I've been bugging her about the re- for the research. And I said, how would you feel to write a book together? And then there was dead silence. And she's like, tell me how that would work. And I said, <laughs> I don't know how that would work. We'd have to figure it out. and. um it took her a couple of moments, but she agreed. And, um, we embarked on a project together, um, to write a book about fandom.
0: Wow. What a meaningful experience between a father and a daughter. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know,
1: just for the audience's sake, uh, how, how old is she? Um, when we started this project, um, which was about Six years ago, she was 22 years old and was just entering medical school. Um, The project itself took um, about four years. And then the book published in the um, very beginning of 2020. And um, interestingly, about a couple of months after it published, she graduated from medical school and is currently an emergency room doctor at Boston Medical Center, doing her residency. So, what's interesting about the the arc of our experience is that when she started, she was just entering med school. Now she's actually a doctor. Um, and what's super cool about having done this with her is that unique perspectives that each of us bring. You know, you've got a an early '60s white male who loves The Grateful Dead, and a, a mid '20s woman who's mixed race who loves um, K-pop, <laughs> and uh, and so we had lots of things that that we enjoyed um, that were similar. We both like live music, but many things that were utterly different. And um, you know, her being a being a doctor, utterly different into mm. k-pop utterly different the experience of what it's like to be a mixed race millennial woman utterly different mm. um and so that just lended itself to be such a a, a great experience i think for both of us mm. uh, and also made the book better
0: totally i'm sure the perspective she could bring into the work was uh profound i'm, I'm curious uh this question works both ways so uh I'd love for you to maybe answer for her. What do you think she learned the most about you as a person in this process? And what do you think you learned the most about her through this process?
1: You know, it was interesting was that we had to shed very quickly the father-daughter dynamic. It wasn't going to work as a hierarchical relationship. Mm. <laughs> I Yes, I'm the father. But I couldn't be the boss, so um, I think what we both learned is that that we could be true partners, uh, and and I'm, I I think I can speak to her on this subject. We both could be true 50-50 partners um, on this project, and I had to learn to be able to realize that in some cases, as we were writing and researching this book, um, her ideas were better than mine. And she had to learn uh, throughout the process that there are some cases where what I was doing wasn't the right approach. And she had to be strong enough as a person to say, you know, Daddy, you're full of shit. That's not how we should do it. Um, We should change and we should do it a different way. Um, And I think it took us a little bit of time to, to get there, but eventually we did get to the point where we approached it as full partners. And, you know, I would give her, for example, a section of the book that I wrote for her to read and comment on, and and she had no problem marking it up and telling me what sucked. (laughs) And so I think that that allowed us to grow as um, a father-daughter team, but also I th- I would say, if if I can be so bold, to move from a parent-child relationship to a relationship that was based as two adults. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's powerful.
0: That you could create a let's just say culture of constructive conflict uh in a dynamic that, you know, just from a power perspective, you're always, you know, you were You were the provider in certain ways or, you know, the father and, you know, that comes with its own, you know, things, but giving her that ability to speak up and kind of put your thoughts in place for the overall collective performance and impact of the work itself.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And we both had to realize that, um, you know, this this was a project that if we did a good job would benefit both of us. Um, you know, it wasn't like me asking her to like, help me rake the leaves outside, you know, it was like, um, Hey, if we, if we do do a good job with this, there's, there's benefits for both of us. Um, and, and, um, and, and, and there's financial benefits, you know, because we shared in the royalties of the book and there's intangible benefits, um, as well. And, not to give you the punchline ahead of time, but I will, um, the book came out and it made the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And um, and that was a tremendous accomplishment that we could both share um, equally as the co-authors of the book. And, um, you know, I, I had uh, the honor of of actually call, uh, calling her on the, because I was reading the Wall Street Journal on the week it came out, uh, or the week after it came out and we learned that we hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list and um so i texted her and i said I, I didn't know if she was up yet it was pretty early in the morning and i said when you're up and you've had your cup of tea text me back i want to i'm going to call you which she did and i said hey um just wanted to let you know that um and the book is called Fanocracy that Fanocracy is a Wall Street Journal bestseller and then there was silence on the other end of the phone and she's like what <laughs> what me a best selling author that's crazy, and so the idea that if we did a good job, we could share in something mm. uh if we work together as a team, we're going to achieve more than you know if I was dictating everything was actually worked out really well because in the end, the book has has done and continues to do very well, yeah, wow, how when you were able to call and tell her that, how did that make you feel? Oh, it was one of the best phone calls I've ever made. It was, I, it was a, just a really unique kind of experience to be able to share. And um, I was really l- lucky as well because at the time I was, um, I was together with my wife, and um, we were actually traveling. We were on the road. Um, I was speaking at a Tony Robbins event. My my, my wife came with me and um that day i think i was going to go on the stage um at at a tony robbins event which i speak at on a regular basis so my wife and i were together in the same hotel room and we did the call on speakerphone so the three of us could could share the experience Mm. um and um, and i think that made it better we only have one child so um you know it's we've got a a pretty good three-person team going on although my wife did not have a role In um, in the creation of the book, it was still nice to be able to have her share it. And and um, yeah, it was it was, you know, the culmination of a lot of hard work. You know, writing a book is really hard work. Marketing a book is really hard work. Um, You know, we did um, um, I think we did over one hundred and fifty podcasts to promote the book. She wasn't wasn't on all of them, but she was on some. We did speeches to promote the book. She and I spoke together on the stage a number of times. So there are many things that we did together that we had never done together. We'd never been on a podcast together. We had never done a video together. We had never done a speech in in front of a live audience. This was pre-COVID before. Uh, And all of that, all of those things were new experiences for us to share together yeah no that's that's what a a special way to build a bond
0: uh or further a bond right with uh, one of your own and uh also give her a stage and a platform and pedestal to rise up on and you know i'm sure it's pretty neat for her with with her work uh medical you know medical space to you know share right um she's not just her job but she has these extensions of her that you know are, are very cool experiences
1: yeah and i and, and um i would imagine over time that um that that will benefit her in many different ways uh, yes. as she's growing in her um, field that she's chosen to do um, medicine she's actually an emergency room doctor um you know she's not just a doctor she's a wall street journal best-selling author who's a doctor it's like it's super cool. Right. Absolutely. Now, now, uh,
0: Dan, I, I would love, you know, you said you worked on this for about four or five years and uh, before you were able to turn it into publishable text during that four or five year period. And my, I think you said four, but um, being safe here uh, during that four year period, uh, do any memories or stories stick out to you as maybe inflection points or um, catalyst moments, you know, that, you and her would both look at and say, wow, that was a turning point for us in the way the book turned out or the way we were able to move forward in our partnership together. Uh, I'm just curious if anything jumps at you.
1: Yeah, there's one thing in particular that was really interesting. And um, yeah, it was about four years, but a number of different elements of the four years. The first was My initial research, where I hadn't yet to invite her to become part of the project, that was the beginning. Then when I invited her to become part of the project, and we were researching, then we were writing, um, and then we were trying to find um, the right publisher for the book. Then when the book was accepted, we had to revise the manuscript And then it takes publishers six months for the book to come out. So a number of different elements of this, of the four year process, but there was one point in particular that was very, very interesting. When we first started writing. So early on in the process, we first started to write, um, we were writing where she would start writing something, then I would edit it, or I would start writing something and she would edit it. And we were creating a manuscript in one voice so it was a book with um two authors but one voice mm. and we were finding that this approach um had challenges because she had a certain writing style and viewpoint and outlook and things that she was a fan of. I, as well, had certain things that I, um, uh, that I enjoyed, and that I was bringing into the book and I, and my life experience and my writing style. And it was proving to be really difficult for us to write in the collective we, you know, putting it together in a way that it was one voice. And so, we both recognized that that this was proving to be a problem and we finally realized that we had to completely redo the book like like basically toss away what we'd already done and what we chose to do instead was draft to, to write each individual chapter ourselves in our own voice and actually say that you know chapter 1 Uh, Well, chapter one was different. Chapter one was very short, was by David and Rako, But chapter two was by David. Chapter three was by Reiko and so on. Oh, how cool. We actually created a byline for each chapter. So people knew instantly who was writing um, each of those chapters. And that allowed us to bring our own writing style, our own voice, our own stories, our own experience Mm. into the book in a way that made it way better because um, people could experience that, um, that yes, I I understand who Reiko is. I can feel her voice coming through. I understand who David is. I can feel his voice coming through. And then um, um, after um, we got the publishing deal um, and we went with penguin random house the one of the largest publishing houses in the world for the book when that happened um we just when we started to work on the audiobook we realized that we were going to both read the audiobook version so she read her chapters and i read my chapters and that also made of course our individual voices come through because it was literally our individual voices and and i think that that Was a very major inflection point that made the book better was that realization that um even though we were co-authors on a book, we still needed to make sure that our individual voices were heard. Mm, Wow. I'm just thinking about you know traditional books, right? Yeah, they are very much
0: written through the vein of one voice, uh, one message. And that's what we're accustomed to. But giving each other your own space to have a voice in the message within, uh, really empowering and also unique, right. For, for the reader, uh, who isn't used to that style. And, uh, so I, I, I think that's incredible and also really appreciate just the
1: differentiation around ha- how you guys, you know, found your way to that end point. It made it for a really great project in many ways, because, um, yeah, we we're co-authors and we we're writing about the same subject, but she was able to bring things to the story that I could never, ever, ever, ever bring. I, I don't have the experience as a millennial woman. So I'll give you one example. Um, when she was going through medical school, um, actually prior to medical school, when she was in her under, doing her undergraduate work, um, she went to Columbia University and studied, among other things, narrative medicine. Uh, as a pre-med student. So narrative medicine came out of Columbia University. It's the idea that uh, the best medicine is when the healthcare professionals understand the patient's underlying story. And that underlying story helps them to be able to provide better patient outcomes than simply um, looking at symptoms. You know, most Western medicine, they come, you know, a patient comes in to the doctor or the hospital and they take vital signs and they say what's wrong. And, you know, they take your, take your temperature and your blood pressure or whatever, and then they prescribe some medication or whatever they do. Um, narrative medicine is understanding the entire person's story. So she tells... And this this act this story actually is in the book. And I think it's super interesting where Reiko was working with a patient and she had a lot of time on her hands because she um, was simply an undergraduate pre-med student. She was not a doctor, but she was spending time in a in a hospital and she was interviewing a patient who had, you know, a bad form of cancer and was going to be passing Away At some point in the next year or two. So it was a tough discussion. But Reiko didn't ask him about cancer, didn't ask him about his symptoms, didn't ask him about how he was he was feeling. Mm. Instead, she said, what are the things that you love to do? And then he ended up talking about how he loves to create art. He was not a professional artist, but that was his love. He loved to create sculpture and, um, and sculpture was his thing. And um, then they got around to talking about the health issues. And he admitted to her, he said, you know, um, as long as I can do my art, I want to continue to live. As soon as I can no longer do my art, then I'm ready to pass on. And to Reiko, As a future doctor, that was incredibly enlightening because the only way she could get to that was by understanding the patient's story. And by understanding the patient's story, which is at the heart of narrative medicine, she was able to then realize that this particular patient um, had a very particular um, criteria for how they wanted to be treated. And it was all about making sure that he could do art as long as possible. But once that was no longer possible, he was ready yeah. for the next stage of his existence. And um, and and she, she wrote about that story in one of the chapters about, about narrative, because as, you know, again, this book is about fandom, but as you're developing fans, understanding... Um your customers, understanding the people you're trying to reach. In your case, Brian, understanding your listeners is more important than sometimes than the product you're offering to them. And uh, this idea of narrative became really interesting. Yeah. Wow. Chills. Uh, it, so
0: neat that Columbia has a program like that. Not surprised, but very neat. Not only because, but I've done a lot of, uh working on just around my health health learning and so much of our external pain or manifestations or diseases come from you know come from a lot of our past events in, in, in some ways right so whether it's a terminal illness or something that can be maybe more, um, handled, right? Like how understanding the root cause and not treating top with topical symptoms. I was uh, such a believer in a holistic approach and, you know, getting the qualitative story around and, you know, the insights around how that may have developed. So, um, that would be fascinating. to just, ask our questions, but uh really, really um appreciate the story here and uh how that came to be and the, the tangent. Um so let's let's um give some space or airtime to to the book itself. Um and uh, after talking about the relationship you've built with your daughter and how you created it, tell us a little bit about the book. Tell us about, you know, what you learned about fandom, uh writing it and some of the ways that you've seen it have an impact on the audience that you've shared it with.
1: So um, we really dug in deep into fandom Um, hadn't really been done before in book form and really want to understand um, how and why people become a fan of something we interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people about what they're a fan of. Um, you know, a sports team they're a fan of, a rock band they're a fan of, they're a fan of camping or skiing, or um, um, or they're a fan of gardening or bird watching, or, um, uh, or or a particular author. You know, whatever it is, people are fans of different things. Um, there's people who are fans of software companies. There's people who are fans of of um, uh, of all kinds of different things. And we want to look at what's the root of fandom. And we dug into the neuroscience aspect of fandom, which was really interesting. And again, Reiko being a doctor um, at the time she had just started med school, but um, at the time that we were doing the research, but for far enough along that we wanted to look at um, if we could find any underlying factors. And in fact, we did. It turns out that all humans, you and me and everybody listening in, all of us are hardwired to want to be part of a tribe of like-minded people. Because when we're a part of tribe of a tribe of like-minded people, we're safe and we're comfortable and secure. And that actually is rooted in neuroscience and goes back tens of thousands of years in human history. Because when you were with your group of people you are safe and comfortable when you're with you when you're not with your group and you're alone, you're vulnerable. And if you meet a group of other people who are not part of your tribe, um, that can be um, a dangerous situation. And that's still true today. You know, you if you walk into a room and you, your friends are in the room, you feel great. If you walk into a crowded, um, you know, subway car, for example, you feel a little bit vulnerable. And so um, that was really, really interesting and informed a lot of the ideas around fandom is how can you understand your business to develop fans um, if that's your goal um, to develop fans from the perspective of building a tribe of like-minded people. Um, So that was particularly interesting. And uh, we looked at a number of different ways that people build fans and, um, And looked at stories around fandom. And as people, as we talked with people about this idea, you know, a lot of people would make excuses to us and they'd say, oh, I can't build fans because I'm in the, you know, XYZ business. I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a software company, you know, I I have a commodity product, whatever it is. Um, So we really want to find examples of all sorts of companies that have developed fans. And one of my favorite examples from the book is an automobile insurance company. And, you know, uh, when I when I do my speeches, um, although there haven't been many in-person speaking gigs during the pandemic, um, uh, but um, but I did do some talks prior to the pandemic um, right after the book came out in early 2020, I would say. Put up your hands if you're a fan of your automobile insurance company, and almost nobody would. Nobody likes insurance. Um, and in fact, um, I found an, insu- an auto insurance company that has millions of fans. They're called Haggerty Insurance, and they specialize in classic car auto insurance. And what they did, I, I, I interviewed the CEO of the company, McKeel Haggerty, about four years ago for the book. And he said, David, we have built our entire company on building fans. We don't have products. We don't have services. We build fans Mm. of our company. So what do they do? They go to classic car auto shows and provide free information to people about classic cars. They have a website um, where you can find valuations of, of thousands and thousands of different makes and models of classic cars. And because Haggerty insures so many classic cars, these are real valuations of how much people have insured their cars for, um, what valuations. Um, they have a YouTube channel with well over a million subscribers. Wow. Um, they have a driver's club with over 650,000 members. And these ways of building fans. Um, are completely different than the way that other automobile insurance companies do business. And most of them are just buying TV ads. Mm. Um, And so Haggerty quickly became the number one classic car auto insurance company in the world. And super interesting um, to me is um, as we're recording this episode, last week, Haggerty went public on the stock exchange. And I I interviewed McKeel Haggerty four years ago. And he's like, David, we're building this business based on fandom. I'm not built. Everyone, he's McKeel told me everyone hates auto insurance. So I can't market the way everybody else does. I need to build fans. Hmm. And how cool is it that four years later, um, the ideas that um, are part of this book, Fanocracy, that we wrote, have a, have allowed this company to achieve such success that he just went public on the stock market.
0: Yeah,
1: it's very special. And from everything you said, it took a long long term approach with people
0: versus a short-term approach with paid ads, right? Um, and the underlying ways they did that, right? through the the free information, the YouTube, the classic car valuation site, you know, just a value value first company taking maybe an Adam Grant approach here of give, give first type of model and uh, to, to the people. What I want to ask is, is underneath, right. All these interviews that you did and maybe I'm sure there were a ton of commonalities, right. Between what it takes to actually build fans within an organization or within a sports team. What did you find is maybe some of the consistent overlapping criteria for someone was to say, I wanna go out and build a like-minded tribe. What are the ingredients to, you know, to make that possible?
1: Um, well, there's um, there's a number of different ingredients um, and uh, we've, we wrote about a number of them in the book, but um, underlying much of it is that it's not about selling products and services, it's about creating that tribe of people. And there's many different ways to create the tribe of people. Many of them are pretty easy to do. Like for example, this is one of, of of a bunch of different ideas that we suggest. But one of them is to give gifts to people with no expectation of anything in return. And by gifts, I don't mean like wrapping up a present and giving a gift. Um, in the case of Haggerty, they have um, a YouTube channel which is free. That's a gift to potential customers as well as existing customers. Haggerty also has um, classic car valuations. That's a gift they're giving with no expectation of anything in return. And that's the key. No expectation of anything in return. A lot of people, for example, do the opposite. Um, for example, on their website, they say, OK, we're going to give you a free white paper or a free ebook, or um, a video or whatever it is. But they make you register to be able to get that content. So that's the opposite. That is a coercion technique. Um, giving a so-called free report that people have to register for is not free. What you're getting instead of money is you're getting somebody's personal information. And what we learned is that giving a gift with no expectation of anything in return is way better. And one of the examples we wrote about, which I love, is Duracell batteries. So again, I mentioned earlier that a lot of times people say to me, well, my business can't build fans because and they make an excuse why they can't build fans um, and um, Haggerty Insurance. I mean, automobile insurance. No one, everyone hates automobile insurance. How can we build fans? Well, Haggerty did. Batteries are a commodity, and people will often say to me, "I can't build fans because I have a commodity product." But Duracell has a program called Power Forward, which is super interesting. What they do um, is they provide free batteries to people who are the victims of natural disasters where the power has gone out to their homes. So hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, snowstorms, um, things like that, um, that cause a long-term power outage, you know, a day or two or more. haggerty will send, a, they have a fleet of trucks in the Power Forward program and send the fleet of trucks to um the people who are these victims of the natural disasters and gives the and give them free batteries with no expectation of anything in return. You don't have to register, you don't have to give your name, you don't have to give your phone number. They just literally park their truck and hand out batteries to people. Mm. You don't even have to demonstrate a need for the batteries. So people, you know, people have a flashlight and they realize that they don't have any batteries for the flashlight. last time they used, it was two years ago and the batteries are dead. All of a sudden they've got the batteries for the flashlight. They've given away over 10 million batteries to people um, uh, who have these needs. And um, you go to their Facebook Um, And they have 6 million fans on Facebook. And many of those people are are fans of the Power4 program. And um, um, we interviewed Ramon Valentini, who is the vice president of marketing at Duracell. And he said, David, this is the best program we do. It's way better than anything else we do, because every one of those fans who is given a free package of batteries will, will remember that. And they'll share with their family sometimes. Sometimes they'll share with their friends. Sometimes they'll share with social on social media. And the next time they go, they need to buy batteries. They will remember that Duracell were the one, the company that gave them batteries when they were in need. And they may even buy our batteries if they cost a little bit more than the cheap brand. Uh, so um, while we came up with a number of different ways that people can become fans. Um, uh, one of them is giving gifts with no expectation of anything in return. Wow. What lessons,
0: what lessons in, in not, not, not transacting a piece of value, whether monetarily personal information, right. And just showing up for, for the people and doing it in a way that's going to serve them and the most wholehearted way. And, uh, you know, just serve them. So, Thanks for sharing the the examples uh, on the website and also with Duracell and and how everything you learned from the book. David, this has been such a great experience uh, interviewing you, uh, meeting you digitally for the first time. Uh, Where
1: where can people find the book? Where can people find you? Where can uh, people check out everything you do? Um, thanks. Um, Brian has been really fun for me too. Um, so we have a great website for the book at fanocracy.com. Uh, so go to www.fanocracy.com. There's a bunch of information you can get there. It's free. <laughs> you can uh, see some videos and, and, uh, and whatnot. Um, from there, um, you can also find my social media. I'm David Meerman Scott. I'm the only one on the planet. So if you Google my name, you'll find me. On most of the socials, I am DM Scott D-M-S-C-O-T-T. Thank you. Well,
0: best of luck to you and excited to watch your journey unfold from here. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.